0: Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. My name is Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor at the IC. Joining me in the pod today, we have Megan Boxall. How are you doing, Megan?
1: I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
0: Not too bad. You've been uh, writing the seven days column for have, us this yeah, week. yeah. Big week. Big week. So you're our generalist expert. <laughs> Contradiction in terms, perhaps. Also in the pod, we have Alex Newman, our commodities writer. How are you doing, Alex? Good. Thanks, Ian. Well... Well, I'm, well, I'm well. well. Okay, good stuff. Someone who isn't well is uh, Harriet Russell, uh, who we have over in quarantine in the control room. How are you, you doing, Harriet?
2: Yes, good. I'll try and keep the coughing to a minimum.
0: We are going to turn your mic down during your coughing fits mm-hmm. for the good of the listeners. Okay, let's crack straight on with seven days. Megan, so quite a few big stories this week. Why don't we start off with something that happened kind of at the beginning of the week, which was the BBA warning around the UK's decision to leave the European Union. So what have they said?
1: Yeah, so the BBA has...
0: Which is the British Bankers Association.
1: Yes, it is. They have come out with this warning. So earlier in the week they had their meeting and what came out, the headlines that sort of came out of the meeting were the fact that they had been in touch with a lot of the big banks and the big banks were saying... That they were preparing to move their headquarters out of the UK because of the fact that we are leaving the EU and potentially leaving the single market.
0: And this is something we've talked about in the podcast before, right? At the moment, everyone within the EU have passporting rights in terms yes. of selling financial services and other service, services within the bloc. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're worried that they'll lose them subject to whatever deal is agreed between yeah. the EU and the UK.
1: Yeah, but what was interesting was what the MD of the BBA said earlier this week was that this was going to be pretty awful for both the UK and for Europe because if any of the big banks were to move to France or Germany, yeah, they'd still have the free passporting and they'd have these big banks headquartered here. But there would also be problems in moving those banks there which could end up being bad for those countries in, in general. So he was generally just warning and that a lot of...
0: Is this just lobbying? You know, yeah, obviously it it's to... so costly for banks to move mm. that the idea that they would move anyway regardless of the decision seems like, you know, a lot of cost for not a particularly good reason. Yeah, uh, But that maybe is being a little bit too naive.
1: Yeah, well it's a lot of the analysis around what, what was said earlier in the week was that the BBA were sort of using scare tactics to try and put everyone off, <laughs> not just the banks, but also the governments and everyone off that, the idea that banks should be moving. And people are talking about it, so it might have worked.
0: No specific names involved. There weren't weren't banks which uh, were attached to these. The uh, FT has reported a a Russian bank that might be planning to move um, some of its operations out of the UK. But yeah, a lot of these were kind of off the record Mm. conversations. But you know, you would expect the BBA to know, but at the same time they are a lobbying group. Mm. I suppose one thing, uh, a story relevant to that uh, within seven days was the um, negotiations over the EU's trade deal with Canada. So Mm, what's been happening there?
1: Yeah, so that I think is sort of put people's backs up a little bit because there's now a bit, bit of concern as to how difficult it is to actually finalise a trade deal with the EU.
0: And this comes down to some people called Walloons.
1: Yes. Um,
0: explain to us, who are the Walloons? So the
1: Walloons are the people who live in the south of Belgium. They are the French-speaking part of the country. Belgium. It's a
0: very socialist. Yeah, as well as it's a
1: socialist it. part of the country. Um they have said that they didn't agree to the terms of the trade deal with Canada. They were worried about what it would mean for small businesses. They said the trade deal was great for big business but not for some small local businesses. Um, so they, they said no we're not, we're not having this deal and Belgium which meant that
0: Belgium itself yeah, obviously so couldn't Belgium sign. as a
1: whole yeah said that they put politics before trade.
0: Yeah, and then we had the uh, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, saying he wouldn't attend the summit unless all the because all of the EU member states have to agree to the deal. So what I suppose what this demonstrates, and we should just say, just as we came into the podcast, that the Belgian Prime Minister has tweeted um, that they should be able to kind of sign up to the deal now. So it might all go through, but it does demonstrate the difficulty of getting every EU member state to sign off on a trade yeah. pact.
1: Yeah, exactly, and the strength that a small number of people can have in change. Changing, changing the outcome for such a wider population.
0: Democracy in action, isn't it? <laughs>
1: it really is. So, yeah, but yeah, uh, like you say, it, seem, it seems to all be going through now um, and the summit's actually being held held today and uh, and Belgium seems to have agreed.
0: Another story that's been getting a lot of attention this week is surrounding the banks. Obviously, we're having the quarterly earnings figures, um, but people are focusing on the provisions that banks are having to set aside, again, in regards to PPI and, and past mis-selling. So, yeah, what have we had here?
1: Yes, we had Lloyd's yesterday... And they booked another one billion um, in provi- provisions um, on their PNL account, which s- saw pre tax profit profits dented quite largely. and uh, yeah, so that
0: was an extra billion pounds. Yeah, but why on top was of that the
1: 16 billion? So yeah, that's um, they're saying it's because um, of the extended deadline. so the deadline for those making claims, PPI, PPI claims is now extended to June 2018.
0: And the bank said, we think this is the last bit of money that's yes. been set aside. I think so, said that before. Yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah, if you believe that one. And we've also just now had, yeah, after we, had we went to press Barclays. Barclays
1: today, yeah. I suppose that is the extended deadline. More people making those PPI claims, more money needed to...
0: So it's now 2019 that the deadline, and yep. um, there is also well, there has been promised previously uh, a widespread publicity campaign ahead of the deadline, because obviously the government doesn't want to be seen to stop to be stopping people that uh, have a right to uh, redress from get, getting it. So mm-hmm. there will be some kind of awareness. Um, campaign in in advance of the deadline so i suppose at the moment these are still this is still guesswork in terms of the numbers about how much they're actually going to have to set aside yeah okay but you know that that problem is probably not going away all right well if we have a look at the news section and the story we have here is british american tobacco which has offered to pay a lot of money to secure the remainder of the state uh, the remainder of the business of reynolds american that it doesn't currently own so what's a little bit of the background here
2: What's quite interesting about that question is we don't know what the background is. It really took the market by surprise, I think, last Friday. And they came out, they're going to pay a 20% premium to Reynolds shareholders. It's $56.50 a share, which at the last take was around £46. Um, They did... They did do a big sort of um, deal which involved imperial brands as well um, a couple of years ago and and that was tricky enough. It was sort of all this brand swapping that went on. But this is sort of the next step and we suspect the deal might come up against some sort of competition issue.
0: So that was Reynolds' takeover of yeah. Lorillard. And so as part of that, some of the brands had to be sold off, which Imperial Brands picked up. Yep. I actually wrote my taking stock on this week, the complicated history of the tobacco giants. But there will be some issues around this deal. There have already been some concerns raised. What are they?
2: Yeah, so particularly the credit agencies are already sort of weighing in on this. Um, aside from the political angle, um, they really think that the level of debt that BATS would have to raise in order to help fund this deal would be, problematic. And so they've kind of put their ratings for these stocks on the watch list for now, which which didn't go down well. Um, it sent the shares down actually about 2% on the day and then further down this week when, when that news came out too.
0: And I suppose in terms of what is good about this deal uh, and just a little bit on the history of it is that BAT has this big stake in Reynolds American because it folded one of its businesses in the past into Reynolds American in in exchange for this stake in the Mm -hmm. business. And Reynolds American has, you know, Pall Mall, Newport, Camel, these kind of well-known brands in the US. Um, So it would be obviously earnings accretive in terms of those um, getting more profits out of the, the company for the wider group. But also reynolds is quite strong in emerging markets right and has other areas of operations that bat could um benefit from
2: yeah absolutely i mean the growth story for big tobacco has really been two two-sided in that its emerging markets are really sort of the fastest growing markets for them in terms of um new smokers in terms of traditional tobacco but then ov- obviously in the more developed markets in sort of western europe and and the us it's um obviously vaping is is the new trend so they've kind of got that as well and reynolds actually has you know, feet in, in both of those camps. So in terms of cementing their foothold in each of those sort of growth areas, it, it would be a great deal for batch. I can totally understand from the board's perspective why they see this as an attractive deal. But uh, but yeah, the market has concerns.
0: And we've had a couple of deals this week where credit agencies have raised concerns about the amount of debt needed to fund it, aside from regulatory issues. The other mm-hmm. one being AT&T's takeover of Time Warner.
2: Yeah, and actually that's already been weighed in on politically as well. Both Clinton and the Trump camps have come in and sort of raised issues about that in terms of the, the foundation of a monopoly effectively and, and what that would do for market competition out there.
0: And it was interesting with the the bat thing. When that came out, British Americans share shares actually fell yep. uh, and Imperial Brands shares actually rose on yep. the day of that announcement. So kind of giving you an idea of the instant market reaction.
2: Yeah, I mean, the big thing about the tobacco stocks, I mean, we've only got two listed in London, Imperial and, and BATS and, and the big thing for them is that they're, they're such defensive plays in terms of being income stocks and over time, what's, what's really fueled investors into those stocks are the consistent returns. So if BATS is going to be diverting an awful lot of money into sort of funding this deal and then integrating it, you've got to start asking questions Maybe it's too early to ask those questions, seeing as Reynolds hasn't even sort of come back to the table yet. But in terms of how they would consistently sort of keep that dividend up, particularly at the yield, which was traditionally around 5%, um, you know, those are valid questions.
0: Yeah, I think Reynolds itself is very cash generative. But then if they are going to have to increase the um, offer price, um, you've got the question of how much debt uh, the company is going to have to take on. So, yeah, that would be an interesting one over the medium term if if it does happen. OK, well, elsewhere in the uh, news section, Alex, I'll bring you in here because you've written a really interesting analysis piece, a comparison, really, of uh, two of the mega miners, Anglo-American and Glencore, uh, two businesses that had a, have had a rough ride with low commodity prices and have put in place restructuring plans and have had kind of different levels of su- success. But your your piece also looks at how the market has kind of graded them on the mm. progress that they've made. So, yeah, what did you find here?
3: So, I mean, the most recent news is Glencore has sold its uh, Australian rail division. Uh, that was that was uh, announced last Friday. That's the fifth uh, disposal it's done this year, or stake sale, if you include parts of its agricultural business which were offloaded to pension funds at various stages. That is the the, the background to these these sales is about a year ago Anglo American and Glencore suffering terribly by the downturn in commodity prices and slowdown fears around China were looking so heavily indebted that investors and markets were questioning their potential solvency they needed dramatic restructuring and, and turnaround um, uh, strategies both both uh, Anglo and Glencore decided that sales of of you know of, of their assets were the the key way to bringing bring down their debt, of course they also cut their dividends, and they cut. The, I mean, they cut the dividends first, and then you know the the bulk of their the debt reduction plans were going to come from asset sales. Of course, the difficulty of of selling in a depressed commodity market assets which people think you know aren't aren't that earnings enhancing, you know, was 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 really what crystallized the the fall towards the beginning of this year of Glencore and Anglo's share prices because people thought they're just not going to be able to offload these assets. Since then. They've gone on an absolutely remarkable run. So, these are two of the really, in the whole London market, two of the best performers this year. And surprisingly, given uh, Glencore's slightly more aggressive uh, disposal pipeline, they actually haven't done quite as well as Anglo American. That's probably because Anglo is exposed uh, to commodities, particularly coal and iron ore, to a greater degree than Glencore, which have both done very, very well. There's the effect of a delayed US rate. Uh, rate rise uh, which is you know is good for commodity prices and it has been good for commodity prices over the summer but I mean it's 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 really really remarkable when you look at the valuations now of Anglo-American and Glencore given where they were just a year ago
0: and so you would say, you you argue in your piece, that the major factor are those commodity price rises. Yeah, but also you know the disposals, the fact that they are getting away some of these assets. Yeah, uh, you know what look like reasonable prices, are having an impact. I mean, Glencore's had a, a greater scope to sell assets at reasonable prices because
3: they're so enormously diversified. You know, they own a rail division, which is a slightly odd for a commodity uh, commodities group. They have huge agricultural assets as well, which they've been able to sell
0: at decent prices. And that's, I suppose, because pension funds want uncorrelated returns, so actually there's been quite a lot of appetite for agriculture assets, given that they are very uncorrelated with the other assets that pension funds tend to hold. So that's quite an example of finding quite a smart buyer yeah, for, for the asset. Yeah. Conversely, I mean, Anglo, they,
3: they sold, uh, they, they sold their, their NMB division earlier this year. They've not done much else. There was some talk about selling uh, some of their coal and copper assets. That those those sales haven't materialized what's quite interesting now is some analysts are saying Mark Cutifani the chief executive of Anglo's um, decision to scale down to just platinum diamonds and copper potentially looks overdone because they've got you know they've got some assets which now are profitable whereas a year ago they were just you know they were they're hemorrhaging losses and questioning whether this this uh, divestment strategy now is the right thing to do. I mean, this is the same analyst <laughs> a year ago was selling, saying, "sell everything." So, uh, um, so it's it's interesting to see. But I mean, our, our argument would be it's still very very tough Anglo because you know potentially the the, the rising coal this year, for example, has been good news for them. But whether that's sustainable is a big big question. Big questions over China, huge difficulties in uh, exiting any of their South African businesses as well. So, I think the jury's still out. But if you uh, if you bought shares in uh, Angler or Glencore pretty much any time this year, then well done. Well,
0: we've been waiting for the contrarian bet on commodities to pay off. Mm. And this year definitely has. Yeah. If You made that decision, um, at least as far as these companies are concerned. OK, well, thanks a lot for that. Megan, I'm going to bring you in because uh, as we can't get away from if we turn on the TV, mm. uh, the US presidential election is drawing to a close. And you've written an interesting piece about how pharmaceutical companies are braced for uh, the impact that either one of the presidential candidates could have uh, on their abilities to sell drugs in the US, which is obviously one of the most important markets. So, yeah, what have you found? What, what are the risks here for companies?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one because actually, surprisingly, both Clinton and Trump are sort of arguing the same point here, um, which I think they don't do very often, but they both agree that... Um, healthcare in the US needs a real shake up and to be honest it really does seem like it needs to buying drugs in for US people is so expensive it's so much more expensive than it is anywhere else in the world Because and why the market, is that? yes yeah, because the market is it's very fragmented so in the UK the government is solely responsible for negotiating the price of drugs and that applies across the country so wherever you are you are buying drugs that the government has negotiated the price for and it's the same same everywhere and that's the same in the eu as well um but in america there's lots of different organizations who are all responsible for haggling with the pharmaceutical companies but that means that the pharmaceutical companies have a bit more power because they are talking to so many different people and they can in america therefore sell their drugs more expensive
0: and And they Sorry, and just to interrupt, they have had some quite high-profile examples of drugs where they've been massively increased in markets by people kind of profiteering off the drugs. And this is something that Hillary Clinton addressed in what you've called an infamous tweet back uh, in September last year.
1: Yeah, it seems like an issue that's kind of been brewing for a while. And then there's been these companies who have not really behaved all that well. It started with Turing Pharmaceuticals, um, who the company managed to inflate the price of a Medicine that had been discovered in the 60s and bought the drug. So they hadn't done any of the research themselves, but inflated the price by about 50 times and then tried to call it a bargain. And it was all just not. Great behavior, but um, there's
0: some people that argue that you know this is just the market for drugs, and if you want if you want the creation of new drugs, you have mm, to have a vigorous a private sector, if, where people can make a lot of money. Yeah,
1: often. there's a valid point if that company is making drugs. Right. Turing Pharmaceuticals is not neither as valiant neither as Mylan. They're buying other people's drugs. They're buying other people's expensive drugs and making them even more expensive, which is definitely a bit of a problem when a lot of these drugs have people with illnesses that could kill them so i can't see why clinton did get very angry about that particular incident she um put a tweet out which <laughs> caused the pharmaceutical and biotech markets which in 2015 were riding high caused them to crash um in a day and then she did it again earlier this year they crashed again
0: i suppose away from like the the rhetoric what are the kind of proposals what they can they can they actually do about it
1: so what clinton is saying is that she's gonna try and give Medicare a bit more um, responsibility in negotiating the prices of drugs and at the moment they they can't do that much negotiation. Um, so she's gonna try and try and ensure that, there's a lot more competition, which means there's a lot more generics coming in.
0: She's trying to um, centralise the kind of buying yeah, process. Yeah, she's
1: trying to make the market a lot more like it is in Europe, where uh, yeah, the buying process is more centralised, where there's where there is more competition for the pharmaceutical companies, but less for the management. Um, she, Trump, is thinks that we need they need a whole new strategy altogether. He wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, which was Obama's. Um,
0: flagship medi- yeah. Yeah, medical reform
1: yeah and um, he's saying all sorts of other things but he wants a complete repeal of Obamacare and completely new um, a new system of drugs pricing and one of those things is to um, is to stop banning the import of drugs from other company- other countries where they're cheaper at the moment you can't import drugs into the US right. um, but he wants to ban that um, as long as they're well regulated
0: so the flip side of this which you have uh, Rightfully included in your piece is that politicians say one thing, especially when they're trying mm. to get elected, and even if they try and do those things and uh, pursue their proposals, um, the U.S. president, as we've seen from Barack Obama's um, term, two terms, um, are constrained by mm. you know the yeah, uh, exactly. by Congress.
1: Yeah, and actually, this is quite a good it's it's a it's a good point to sort of really hammer home in their in their campaigns because it appeals to so many people. So many people are affected by drugs prices that a lot of people will be latching on to what they're saying but yeah once by the time they get in office it's probably going to be a lot harder to actually see through on these things especially if the president and the senate are from opposing parties as they have been in about the obama um terms um and how the polls are looking like it's going to go at the moment although actually i was reading today that the polls are swinging more towards clinton presidency and democrats democratic senate but
0: and that's, that's going to unexpected. be key, I suppose, for these companies. They're going to be looking at not just who gets in the White House, but whether uh, Democrats can win control of the Senate. Yeah. is going to be absolutely crucial. Yeah,
1: because that's a much stronger a stronger base to be working off. If you're all working on the same same idea.
0: Well, thanks uh, very much for that. And yeah, have, have a look at that piece, especially because it kind of talks about GSK as one of the companies that could be affected. Mm, yeah. um, but uh, I'm sure we'll be reporting further on that, depending um, you know which way it goes. Uh, so elsewhere. Let's go to the results section. Harriet, you've covered Whitbread for us this week. It was a quiet week for results, um, but you've covered Whitbread. Normally a solid performer, not quite so much at this point. What's been going on?
2: yeah it's it's one of those stocks that's again it's a really defensive stock, and people have bought into it for long term growth. Andy Harrison used to be at the helm and he was an excellent manager and and the market really liked him a lot they They had a big management change when he left last year, so to say that the market's been on edge with them probably isn't unfair. The shares have had some weak moments and and Bradley Gerard, who who normally covers that stock, although he's been away this week, um, he did tip it on that basis, saying, you know, this it's very odd to get weakness in the Whitbread shares, and when you do, you should really take advantage of that. So that's kind of the background to it. And then, as you say, the results came out this week, and unfortunately, uh, the market was quite disappointed by them, mainly because the margin was down at Costa, which is one of their brands, along with Premier Inn, and traditionally that business has just been growing absolute gangbusters i mean through the recession it was one of the most successful growth brands um ever seen so when we suddenly get a margin squeeze there I think it really sends jitters through the market and it, it harks back actually to what we were talking about on last week's podcast about shares that are highly rated and have these good reputations even the slightest miss can send them tumbling.
0: In terms of what is hitting the margins some of these things are shorter term investments in the company and other things are longer term regulatory changes so what are the kind of things that are affecting the them? Yeah
2: so the short term things are things that you would be actually as an investor probably quite glad to see things like refurbishments and and what have you to the existing store estate the sort of long-term structural things that they can't control but they just sort of have to go along with I mean one of the most obvious things is the introduction of uh, new wages which we had earlier this year
0: and we actually saw some figures out from the ONS demonstrating the impact of uh, retailers either moving early sorry employers moving early on the national living wage in terms of how it's impacting on the Uh, the fifth percentile of earners and the increase that we've seen which is like the highest increase uh, since the minimum wage was introduced in the late 90s so on the on that side of things, obviously, great for lower earners for Whitbread, who employs a lot of people on in, in those wage brackets, um, it's squeezing margins and it's not going to go away.
2: No, exactly. It's it's only going to be a problem that up until about 2020, I think, is when it's supposed to peak. So, um, and and Whitbread was one of those early movers. They they started in October as opposed to April when it was absolutely necessary. So um, so yeah, they've been dealing with it for quite a long time. And and they do say for that reason that come October this year by the time they reach that sort of anniversary, so to speak, of when they introduce the wages, costs should sort of normalise and, and year to year it won't look so dramatic. But for but the now, cost
0: base will still be larger. It will Either still be year, larger. Yeah. Yeah. Um
2: but it just it, year to year the growth figures will sort of match up a little bit more. Um at the moment it's looking like quite a dramatic squeeze.
0: In the past, sometimes Costa's been doing better than Premier Inn, but how is Premier Inn looking at the moment?
2: Premier Inn's doing pretty good, actually. Um, A lot of it is bought-in growth, uh, and by that what we mean is new openings um, tend to drive up. But in terms of sort of regional versus London, they've still got a pretty low market share in London, so there's loads of room for them to grow centrally. Um, And then in the regions as well, they're doing well. So it's again, it's sort of turning into a game of two halves now, which is not unlike a lot of retailers who have sort of multiple brands or, or multiple geographies or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's something to keep an eye on is, is the Whitbrook cost base.
0: OK, and actually, interestingly, you also wrote the sector focus uh, this week, uh, looking at retailers, obviously your, your beat and looking at margins and how they might be impacted. And also just the top line in terms of how it might be impacted by uh, the fall in the pound or just generally as a result of the Brexit vote. And um, so what are the kind of yeah, what are your top lines in terms of the things that you found here?
2: Yeah, it, it was um it was a piece that was sparked quite um, shortly after the vote, and it's sort of been gaining momentum ever since. And we've we've pushed it back in order to kind of take as many issues into account as possible. And of course, you know, people will remember that the minute we voted to leave the EU, the the word on everyone's lips or a lot of people's lips, at least, was, "Are we headed for another recession?" Um, and for retailers, that's you know a big challenge. But we've pointed out in the piece, sadly, the GDP data was not in in time. It's just come out this morning but we you know it was expected to be good and it is you know good for a lot of people it's it's better than they expected so recessionary fears are really receding now but that doesn't mean that retailers don't have anything to worry about they have plenty to worry about the big thing is currency obviously we've covered that already in quite a lot of detail and there's sort of a summary here of which retailers are doing particularly badly on that front and which ones are kind of doing better and then as a as a result of sort of the inflation report that came out last week as well um, there's a lot of discussion around pricing as well because obviously the the main way that you can offset a currency imbalance is by passing it on to your customer.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And I suppose in some ways, inflation isn't always a bad thing for these retailers. If it means higher prices, it depends on their supplier costs, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And as well, I think it really puts a certain end of the market into perspective. Um, I wouldn't want to give anything about the tip section away on the podcast. It's uh it's for you to read later. But what really sort of jumped out was the premium lifestyle segment. Um and there are some brands in there like Ted Baker and Jules, for instance, which are sort of known as structural growth drivers, which won't mean a lot to very many people outside of the industry. But what it means is that they're traditionally they do well in a downturn because customers who sort of have disposable income left and want to spend it on clothes or other sort of discretionary items what they're looking for is quality and so they're sort of attracted to those brands that have that longevity and that reputation.
0: Whereas if we contrast with food inflation, for reasons that we've discussed we discussed last week on the podcast, you might not see the same kind of inflation because of the competitive pressures.
2: Absolutely, yeah. As with general merchandise, it can be a lot more of a sort of diverse environment in terms of competition. Everyone's got different categories. You can offset here, you can offset there. Food is food at the end of the day. And basically, it seems that everyone just wants cheaper food. That's sort of a moral issue, which has been debated at length. But yeah, you're right. The, the environment there is extremely competitive. And the main way to keep up with the competition is to do as many offers and cheap discounts as you as you possibly can. So the CPI made for some interesting reading this week, and we've got a couple of really interesting charts in there, which kind of break down the uh, the categories that go into making up the CPI, and you can see how the prices have moved on the barometer. So clothing and footwear absolutely streaked ahead, whereas uh, whereas food retrenched again.
0: Thanks a lot, Harriet and Alex. I'm just going to bring you back in because we've we've had a couple of profit warnings. Uh, this week, um, one that you wrote about in the news section, um, but we don't, don't need to kind of uh, stress too much because it's a continuation of what's happened before is Cobham, which continues to have kind of a tough environment, especially in its kind of satellite communication and wireless business. And so we've seen an, a second major profit warning, as you've said, in six months. But another one where we've kind of been aware that there's been some problems is uh, Braemar shipping services. You have some concerns that you've raised in your piece Um, regarding the earnings cover for the dividend Um, some of these things won't come as a surprise to readers but the the tough trading in offshore continues yeah absolutely
3: so uh, firstly on the dividend a dividend yield of 8% for a stock like this is is sort of the level that investors are going to start to get concerned about and when I put it to the the management um, at the results this week they said they weren't committing at this stage when they're not in a position to commit to the final dividend so whether that means a one-off cut to the final dividend or uh, a, a resetting of the of the payout rate, uh, I think that's not a decision that they, sounds like they've arrived at yet. I mean, they kept the interim div- dividend. Well, they just didn't want to tell you. Well, they didn't want to tell me. <laughs> um, they've kept the interim dividend of of nine p, um, but I mean, the cover really really is thinning, and they're you know, they they've got a mixed. They have a their end markets are. I'd, I'd say, in general, bad, they don't seem to be deteriorating too much. There are a few bright sparks, for example, they're, they're, you know the ship breaking, there's a bit more uh, there's a bit more transactional vo-
0: volume picking up there, but they, they think they might benefit from the failure of um, hanjin. yeah, I
3: mean their chief executive said it's you know it's a possibility that Hanjin, Han this huge South Korean shipping container group, which we've talked about before, uh, collapsed a couple of months ago, and they're they're basically having to sell or scrap. All of their enormous vessels. So, if there are any roles for Braemar in those in those sales or disposals, that could be a, a, a boon. Um, otherwise, there's 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 quite a lot of um, uh, pressure on 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 freight rates, and I mean the the work they do in the in the in the North Sea traditionally is is all but dried up. I mean their oiling, you know, their exposure to oil and gas offshore uh, is is you know is is a really tricky place to be at the moment. So.
0: And that's the subject that obviously we've covered and we saw a, uh, the shares in Amec, Foster Wheeler fall uh, yeah. today. So that kind of all services segment, it will come as no surprise to anyone listening to this podcast that we are still in a tough situation. Um, but some of these assets are priced very low. So I suppose yeah. everyone's just waiting for when we might have kind of bottomed out.
3: I mean I think really we have to look at uh, when it comes to all services companies their geographical focus so I mean Petrofac is a company we we quite like I mean it's a high risk situation but they're very well very well uh, geared into Middle East uh, Middle East oil and gas projects where you know as we've seen from OPEC's behavior over the last 2 years they've not really turned the taps off to the degree that the US and uh the north sea and uh, other other jurisdictions have done so there are definitely bright spots for the the oil services companies um and you would obviously you would you'd would expect they're very very well geared into any recovery in the oil price so when you know once projects start to get commissioned again um that you know it should be good for them but I mean, the oil majors aren't getting back into this in a hurry it's It's likely to come from the large state owned oil companies uh, more than others so it's really it's really a geographical play i think at the moment when you look at the oil source uh, oil services companies.
0: Thanks, Alex. Um, and there's plenty more to read in the issue this week. The cover story is investment trust stars. So our personal finance team will be discussing that, no doubt, on their podcast. Chris Dillo is talking about inflation. We have a good piece from Emma Powell talking about the FCA's remedies for the kind of capital markets, the primary capital markets, in terms of what the FCA is trying to do to increase the competition at IPO and other capital raising um, operations. Um, we should be hearing more about that in the winter. Actually, there's a consultant about uh, unconnected research and whether unconnected analysts um, invo- so not involved in an ipo or their parent banks not being involved in an ipo can get access to company management and company information in advance of the ipo thus to kind of provide more independent research to the market so that's something that obviously would be meaningful for our readers if it came to pass um, apart from that uh, we have simon thompson we've got chris looking at the kind of buy on halloween rule and what's it telling us about equities at the moment and just on the subject of at&t and time warner do check out the Bull column this week uh where bearable looks at the logic behind a mega deal something that many people in this title are not all too uh, supportive of uh, in terms of how they impact the shareholders in those businesses so do remember to subscribe do remember to sign up to the company's email if you enjoyed this company's discussion and we'll see you next week